Welcome to Rehab Within Reach. We are your hosts, Dr. Chrissy Rankin, physical therapist and CrossFit Level 1 coach. And I'm Dr. Sarah Nelson, a physical therapist, and I'm board certified in women's health and lymphedema therapy, and I also hold a master's degree in orthopedic manual therapy. And I'm Dr. Shona Craig. I'm also a physical therapist, a board certified women's health clinical specialist, certified lymphedema therapist, and yoga teacher. We are a collective of women from various backgrounds who support each other and the community around us that have one thing in common, therapy solutions. This podcast will be addressing how the body, mind, and spirit work together to create our current state of being while offering a refreshing approach to how to create harmony within each system. Our treatment philosophy is to empower people through education by combining modern evidence-based practice with our innate primal wisdom in order to promote body literacy and compassion in your personal healing journey. Even though our professional background started in physical therapy, we take an integrative and holistic approach by addressing all systems of the body in order to bridge the gap between the current medical model in the United States and your ability to make autonomous decisions to achieve independence and wellness. This podcast is meant to challenge you to think in ways that may feel uncomfortable at first, but don't worry. Remember, our goal is to provide resources in order for you to make the best decisions for your well-being, which may go against what most of our society suggests is quote-unquote healthy or correct. As a reminder, this podcast does not replace the medical examination, assessment, and plan of care from a licensed medical provider who has seen you personally. Let's get started. Okay, we are ready to go. So today we have with us Laura McGuckin, who is one of the physical therapists at Therapy Solutions. And um, I'm so excited you're joining in our conversations which is really any of the staff could join at any time, but we've, mm-hmm. we haven't really thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm excited that you're here because of a specific part of your practice, which is working with kids and mm-hmm. pelvic issues. Hey, hey Shona. Shana. Good morning. <laughs> Hi, good morning. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Good. So I want to dive right in and have you talk about, like, can you give us an overview of what your pediatric practices in pelvic floor therapy? Yeah. So in um, pediatric pelvic floor, I work with kids sometimes as young as three years old, um, all the way through teenage years and the kids that I see are referred by, um, pediatricians, family practice, pediatric urology or GI specialists. And, um, I've seen kids with, um, very, um, more severe, um, things that they were born with. Like some kids, if the they have genetic anomalies, and so they have big reconstruction surgeries in the first um, days to weeks of life. And um, so you can imagine if um, organs aren't in the right place, um, that that's going to leave a lot of scar tissue when they're doing those repairs. Um, you know, they're life-saving procedures that we have, but then there's a process for those kids to try to gain control. Um, and then on the, on the other end of things, um, well, I guess in the middle, there's other kids with some genetic, um, issues that may or may not require surgery. Sometimes I send them to physical therapy first and see, um, if they can get that pelvic floor piece, um, the best that they can, then maybe their symptoms will, will, um, resolve or not be as impactful, like on the kidney health. And so if they can learn to, um, empty the bladder, well, relax the pelvic floor, then maybe they don't have to have a surgery. Um, and then there's, um, 
kids who have a lot of severe constipation. So they they do screens for um, like thyroid issues, celiac, um, diabetes. Like there's a whole panel of blood work that can be done. And if all of that is clear, then they'll send them to physical therapy to help them gain control of um, their bowels. Um, and then I've also worked with kids who have pelvic pain. It's usually uh, post-surgery um, pelvic pain. And, and my experience with those kids is that they have a lot of muscle spasms and a lot of tension throughout all of their hip muscles, low back, um, pelvic floor, and all of that um, leads to a lot of pain and that leads to a lot of anxiety and they get stuck in this feedback of um, of pain because they, they don't have any good strategies. They don't know what's causing it. And, um, and then that leads to more anxiety and more pain. So they get stuck in this, this, um, kind of chronic pain cycle and physical therapy has been really effective for those kids. Um, and then I have a, a group of younger, like three to four year olds that are just really struggling to toilet train for all different reasons. Um, and so having some, um, physical therapy interventions for them gives the parents better strategies, gives the kids better strategies, kind of lowers the um, anxiety for everybody, gives realistic expectations. Um, because it's hard for families, I'd say kids and parents who want their kids to be in preschool at three. And preschools don't take kids at three if they're not toilet trained. So um, the parents want them to go. The kids, you know, sounds fun to them, but um, they won't take kids if they're not fully potty trained and independent. Um, and at that age, some kids just aren't ready. And um, and yet it, it our society has kind of pushed kids in that area. Um, I get a, another group of kids who are, are wetting the bed at night. Um yeah, for kids that are um, between four and six years old, there's rapid um, uh, growth in gaining that skill. So um, kids under six, I typically don't see if it's only bedwetting, but um, there's steps that can be taken during those years to help kids gain control. But then after six, they really should be able to stay dry at night. And so um, physical therapy can really be helpful for them to um, gain control for overnight. You you just said a lot of things. Beautifully, <laughs> yeah. beautifully <laughs> categorized all of it. I loved it. <laughs> oh, so let's see where to start with all that. Like, I w I'm excited to have you talk because I think um, the bedwetting is so common and the, mm -hmm. and the potty training things are so common. Yeah. yeah. Um, you introduced a book to us years ago about the, the cause of bedwetting being constipation mm -hmm. for the majority mm -hmm. yeah. of kids. Can yeah. you talk about that? Maybe? Sure. Yeah, Dr. Um, Dr. Hodges is a, a urologist. He's done quite a bit of research, and he's also um, looked at research that has done in um, urology practice before his time that shows about 85% of kids who wet, wet the bed at night have increased stool in the rectum. So um, specifically, the rectum becomes like a holding vault for these kids. And then as it fills up, it pushes on the bladder. And then when kids go to bed at night, they, um, they fall asleep. The bladder has all this pressure on it. The body doesn't really know if that pressure is coming from the inside or the outside because the bladder just senses pressure. And so when they fall asleep, then everything relaxes and everything comes out. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so 85% around 85% of kids, that is the primary cause. Um, the other causes are um, sleep apnea. So if kid truly has sleep apnea, then the diaphragm 
is not um, is impacting that pressure on the pelvic floor because of the snoring and the the bladder. So those kids with the bed, um, there's neurological causes like a, a tethered cord could be a cause. Um, and then there's a genetic um, predisposition. So some kids actually do not produce enough um, antidiuretic hormone at night. So that hormone should start to produce as we're falling asleep. And so if our bodies don't produce that hormone, then our body produces the same amount of urine at night as during the day. And so mm. those kids typically are wetting the bed um, multiple times a night. They've never had a dry night in their life. And, um, and there's a, um, some medication that can help the body um, kind of mimic that hormone. And so um, some kids need, need that. And then typically in their teenage years, when they hit puberty, then their body will start to produce that hormone. Um, but you can see there's like layers. So maybe somebody doesn't produce that hormone, but they also have stool in the rectum. And they're also like not drinking water during the day at school. And so they're overloading in the afternoon and evening. So now they have a, a rectum full of stool. Their body's not producing enough hormones and their fluid intake. It's mostly like two or three hours before they go to bed. Like that's a recipe for like wetting the bed every night. So um, the doctor says, well, let's put you on this you know, hormone, which there's no test for it. There's no like blood work for it. It's just like, here you go. You try it. You take it at night. If you're dry in the morning, then we know it's a hormone issue. If you're wet, then, well, it's not, but maybe it is, but we have to address these other issues first. So we have to get that rectum emptying and then we have to get the healthy bladder habits, bowel and bladder habits, and then that medication is going to work. And then um, the majority of the kids, when they hit puberty, their body starts to produce the hormone. But you can see if like all those other things weren't in place, mm -hmm. even when their body starts to produce the hormone, then they can still be wetting the bed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Laura, you also treat uh, adults. So mm -hmm. do, have you noticed a trend? Because I see also in your notes, like if we share patients, right. you you ask more about childhood um, yeah. uh, in, uh, childhood um, tendencies. Like bowel bladder issues, um, yeah. Yeah, and I uh, forget to ask that stuff. How, do you notice a correlation between people who come to you as adults that had problems in the and when they were kids or teenagers and it just wasn't addressed at that point? Yeah, there can be. Um, I think that we have to, um, there, there's a lot of things that can happen for women around pregnancy, childbirth, you know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, women who have had dysfunction as kids, that was never addressed. It does carry into, um, adulthood. Yeah. And you, and usually, um, it can be very traumatic memories for them if they wet the bed or if they got punished for wetting the bed or if they, um, had, had, um, issues at school and they can remember like when they were on the playground, then, you know, everything came out. And so anyways, it, it um, um, the mental health piece around it, uh, it can be very traumatic. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sounds like there could be a lot of shame around it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and I think parents get frustrated too. So there can be a lot of blame and punishment mm -hmm. that can be traumatic. There can be um, this, we don't talk about poo, you know, right. as physical mm -hmm. therapists, we get really good at talking about poop yes. and, and we're very interested in it, but generally it's impolite and, and people don't want to talk about their poo. Right. Uh, so um, what, 
would be normal um, bowel habits or bowel function for a kid? What, what could parents look for to say, oh, maybe my kid is struggling with constipation? Right. So um, I would say for kids just like adults, the norms are kind of like all over the place that, you know, adults, um, I think we're told like, like one, two, three bowel movements a week can be normal. Right. But like who wants to, like, that sounds terrible. That sounds like awful. And so for, um, for a child who's having any bowel and bladder symptoms, which I would say is um, leakage, bowel, fecal leakage, bladder leakage, um, urgency to where they're like running to the bathroom, um, bedwetting. I want those kids to be having daily soft bowel movements. Like it's never, it's never normal to be straining. It's never normal to have toilet clogging bowel movements. Um, and they should be able to poop within like three minutes, five minutes, maybe at the max, they shouldn't have to sit on the toilet for 20 minutes to have a, a bowel movement. So um, f- for me, it's, it's daily soft bowel movements within five minutes. Um, no straining, no pain, no bleeding, no toilet clogging and no leakage. And I want to say you, I didn't realize that about sleep apnea. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, um, that reminds me of a, a, a an acquaintance of mine who, um, that's, if your kid has sleep apnea and snoring, you want to address that early because that is correlated yes. with depression. Yeah. And she actually lost her teenage daughter to suicide. Wow. Um, and she, she links that to the sleep apnea problem that she had creating mm. this um, right. severe depression. Mm. So these are things yeah. parents can be looking out for. Right. And sleep apnea is um, snoring is the, is the biggest um, like symptom. So a child who's snoring every single night um, that, that would be a, a sign to talk to the pediatrician, get, get seen by an ENT and get checked out. Yeah. That's one thing that I came across. Um, cause my son is, was severely lip and tongue tied. Mm-hmm. That, that can be correlated with, um, sleep apnea because it's also a sign of deeper fascial restrictions. Right, their mouth into their throat, um, and to look out for like that open mouth breathing, and that actually, right. um, if that's the case, then like things like going to see a physical therapist or a chiropractor who does the myofascial release mm-hmm. can really help with that. So it yeah. seems like there's multiple causes like that, um, including that for sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. To look out, for yeah, that. and there's um. There's dentists that will do releases too with laser, um, um, laser yeah, techniques. That's what we and, did. We did that yeah. with laser. Um, yeah. So there's less scar tissue and yes. Right. And, and uh, adults that, um, I've had that have had the tongue ties or lip ties released later in life said that they could feel that tension like all the way down, but it was there kind of their whole life. So they didn't think anything different. Wow. So, yes, thank you. Yeah, cuz there's the that sleep apnea it really it really is a problem. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of other um, causes of the sleep apnea? I'm curious. Um the enlarged tonsils, adenoids. Yeah. Um, so, I remember a time with you. Well, we were in a, a we were part of a team with other mm-hmm. disciplines. Mm-hmm. And I introduced you to one of the doctors as the person treating pediatric therapy right. uh, for pelvic floor. And I was so surprised by the doctor's reaction. It was almost angry. Yeah. Uh, like 
kids are going to grow out of that by the time they're 16. So I think there's a lack of understanding of what physical therapy does. So Mm -hmm. for these conditions, well, and we get that with adults too, like why physical therapy? So can you talk a little bit about what you do in a session? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I do. And in response to that, I think, um, there's, there's pretty good research now about how these um, bowel and bladder issues impact kids' mental health. So mm-hmm. to be dismissive that, oh, they're going to grow out of it when they're 16 or 18 or, you know, whatever, like nobody wants to miss out on overnight camps, um, you know, overnight activities with friends, um, changing their bed sheets and washing them every single night. Like it, it really impacts the family and it, um, it impacts these kids' mental health. So, um, in physical therapy, I do a lot of education. I have a pelvic model. I have a, um, anatomy apron. I have a little doll with internal organs in it. And so I start with the um, I call it like the bottom of the pyramid that I have to educate kids about their bodies. I have to educate their parents about their bodies um, so that they can start to have an understanding that there's something that they can do about it. Because right now it feels very out of control. It happens to them and they don't know what to do about it. And I'd say like across the board with any bowel bladder dysfunction, um, unless there was like a surgical or anatomical cause, um, which is a small, very small percentage of my practice, it feels very out of control. Um, And um, then I talk about what are healthy bowel and bladder habits? How much water should we be drinking? I have a chart from the Institute of Medicine that shows for your age, this is how much um, fluid intake you should have, and this is how much of that should be water. Um, and just kind of basic nutrition, like let's get some fruits and vegetables into our diet that are going to be helpful for keeping our stool soft, that are not going to irritate our bladder. Um, and 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 then how can we how can we do that? Because some kids are um, very opposed to different foods. So I will tell them like my, um, I want you to just try it. Like you have to smell it. You have to take one bite. If you don't like it at all, I tell them just spit it out. But if you don't try it and I want you to try it like 20 times, because that's what we know with with some of these kids, like they have to keep introducing foods if their diet has become very restricted, which I've seen kids who will only eat five foods. And so, you know, so there's kind of an intervention in that piece as well. And then on top of that, then I look at all the orthopedic things like, um, like their hamstring length. So if the muscles in the back of their legs are very tight, then they won't be able to get in a good position on the toilet for emptying their rectum or emptying their bladder. Um, What's their abdominal wall like? I find that there's a lot of, so for, for, um, if I had to estimate, I'd say probably um, like 90% of the kids that I work with have um, some bowel dysfunction even if their primary concern is a bladder issue. And so there's a lot of um, uh, muscle guarding and a lot of tightness and they've been uncomfortable, even if they can't put the words to it, their stomachs don't feel good. Mm-hmm. They, they have cramping. They have, they've been on different medications that just make their whole digestive system not feel good. And so, um, so there is a lot of muscle guarding. There's a lot of tightness. They don't know how to move their pelvis separate from their lumbar spine and their hips, um, because it's just kind of locked down. So, 
Um, so then next I would look at the rib cage angle. Um, because if they've been chronically constipated, their rib cage angle is going to be wide. So if we widen the rib cage angle, then the diaphragm is no longer sitting in good orientation to the pelvic floor. So our natural breathing that should be giving us feedback to our pelvic floor throughout the day, every single day, is now giving input to the abdominal wall or maybe to the to the back, depending on how their rib cage angle is. And so the natural mechanisms that we have for bowel bladder control, it's all kind of jumbled and um, the diaphragm can't do its job. So then the pelvic floor can't do its job. And then the abdominal wall is weak. Um, and kids can actually um, get a diastasis and coning at the abdominal wall from constipation because they've been straining so much. Mm -hmm. And so those are, um, so, so I like to look at that whole system, not just pelvic floor. Um, and then the, the way they're sitting on the toilet. Um, I talked about that a little bit. Most kids that I work with, they need good foot support. Um, because if their legs are dangling, then I can't expect them to get into a forward leaning posture with a neutral or anterior pelvic tilt because they feel like they're going to fall off the toilet. Um, if the, especially, um, girls with more bladder dysfunction, I find that they often are on their tiptoes. Um, instead of even if they're tall enough to have their feet flat on something, or even if the parents given them a footstool, they go on their tiptoes or they put their feet on the back of the toilet, um, uh, toilet base. And so now there's no way for their like entire system to relax because their legs are tense. And we know the, um, the adductors feed into that pelvic floor tightness. Um, and then I'd say after like this, is this is all like building on this pyramid and then we get to the pelvic floor. Um, do they know how to contract? Do they know how to relax? Can they do a lift? Um, do they even have any awareness what, what it feels like to have an urge? Um, many kids that I've worked with, They'll tell me that um, they either don't feel anything when they need to go, or um, for the bowel, they might feel a stomach ache, um, sometimes a headache. And for the bladder, um, I find a lot of kids I work with, it's one extreme or the other. Like it's this um, very strong urgency. They can't control it. It comes like out of the blue, um, and then they will have to cross their legs, use their hand to put pressure on the perineum. A lot of girls will actually sit on their heel, and that's, um, there's a, a doctor that I can never remember his name, but he's from France, I think, and long time ago, um, he, he named this um, strategy after himself because he saw it so commonly that when girls feel like they're going to wet, they squat down and, and put pressure from their heel on their perineum to, to stay continent. Um, and so yeah, right. And so if they, if they don't have good um, sensation of bowel or bladder, then, um, or it's too urgent um, then we add a, a piece of, of what we call interoception. And I feel like the pediatric occupational therapists have really expanded this area for us and have started into more um, toileting issues, teaching, teaching kids how to pay attention to their body and what signals feel like, and not just bowel and bladder, but um, I, I start with hands and feet cause those are the easiest. Like, what does it feel like in your hand when you're holding an ice cube? Um, what does it feel like after you rub your hands together for 10 seconds? And so then they can start to just become aware of how their body feels. 
So, and then, and then there's exercises. Like I do deep squats. We do frog jumps. We do um, core strengthening. And I have like names for like, like we do the slide, we do <laughs> like the bug, we do whatever. So, and then I'll ask kids like, what should we call this one? So then they'll like make up their own name. They'll be like, that's called the twister. And I'm like, okay, that's great. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Shona did a couple of videos on the resting squat that's on our YouTube channel. Therapy Solutions PLLC. Um, so listeners might not know that that is the resting position of the human. And we all should be able to do it. And most people cannot. And I notice how you you watch little kids, little toddlers, and they, they squat down and have a bowel movement in their diaper, right? And then as soon as they're they're getting potty trained. They all get constipated because they're putting it on those toilets with their little legs dangling down instead of that wonderful um, squat. squat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Toilets aren't natural. Do you recommend any sort of like toddler potty that they use instead of the toilet? Yeah, I think those are helpful, but at some point they have to transition to a toilet. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. you just say use a stool for their feet. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I'll even have families either um, uh, like if I do telehealth, every telehealth I have with my kids, then I will tell them like keep your clothes on, go in the bathroom, sit on the toilet, and I want to see what what it looks like when you're sitting on your toilet in your bathroom with your footstool, and then I can I can help them figure out like oh that that footstool is too way too high. Like that's why you don't like using it or it's too low. So you're told you're still up on your toes. So, um, yeah, even though we have the squatty potties now and different, um, like marketed toilet seat or toilet footstools, um, sometimes it's, um, yoga blocks. Sometimes it's bricks, like some, some um, families, I just sound like, look around your house, see what, what you don't mind leaving in the bathroom. And this is the position that we want. So, um, yes. So definitely when kids transition to the toilet, then that's the time to look at the foot support and get something that's the right height for mm-hmm. them to feel comfortable. The knees a little bit above the hips. Um, and then they can lean forward and rest on their elbows and get that angle that the, the rectum is really open. And I, um, and I tell the kids, especially the younger, well, older ones too, but a lot with the younger ones, I, I tell them we want to make a poop slide inside your body so that everything <laughs> can just like slide out. And if you use it like this, then that will help make the poop slide. And oh. <laughs> Chrissy, what were you going to ask or say? I don't remember. Not that I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm always writing down because I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it was more of like the breadth of knowledge that you're talking about of all of these techniques that are so useful now as mm-hmm. kiddos and even as adults. Mm-hmm, and then right. for medical providers to have that, well, why does it matter? It's like they'll just grow out of it at 16. It's like, but again, where did we, where did it become where we're so reactive in medicine instead of proactive? And I just, I just don't, it doesn't hurt anybody to attempt physical therapy or occupational therapy to anything, right? Let alone something pediatric physical therapy Mm -hmm. or occupational therapy for the pelvic floor, like how beneficial of the quality of life of these children and I just right. don't understand that, like, even if you don't know, I think you, uh, other medical practitioners can just be like, you know what? I don't know. However, it doesn't hurt to try. So why can't we just try? <laughs> like, I, right. yes. I, I still don't understand that. And, and if you just that listen to you for five yeah. minutes, like literally what you're talking about, it's like, you're not, I'm, I'm, no pun intended, you're not full of shit, right? Like, <laughs> you can literally, like you can tell just like how knowledgeable and 
you are. And it's just, it's just frustrating, you know, sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's why we do this stuff, right? Is yeah. to make sure that we teach right. and educate and, and improve uh, for future generations. Um, their right. And quality of life. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's some, some um, kids are such like simple interventions that mm-hmm. just make all the difference. Like some kids, I see them like two times, three times. And they're like, good, like, that's it. And so my my average um, is about six visits. And sometimes it's stretched over a whole year because habits don't change overnight. But um, like six times, like six hours of their life over, you know, six months to a year. And they're like, good to go. Like yeah. what a simple intervention that now they like have better self-esteem now they, and yeah. So, and I've even had high schoolers tell me like, I can't concentrate in school because I'm so worried I'm going to leak. Mm-hmm. I can't go to do things with my friends because they don't know I have this, this issue and I don't want to be embarrassed. So, like, how heartbreaking is that? Well, there's a there's another piece to this, like, because you're listing off great information, but someone listening cannot take that information and be as successful uh, in helping someone apply it as the therapist, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. And yeah. um, you know, maybe that's it's, if you want to sp- speak to that the. There, there is this dumbing down of medicine where we're going to scan you mm-hmm. and give you a handout. Um, yes. And we, maybe or watch a this video. Yeah. Right. Like we can yeah. be reduced to a video. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I, I see anyway, that I could add to that, but that therapists in the relationship we bring with the patient in the session is a vital piece. Mm-hmm. I think that this is something that's important to you, knowing you. Yeah, well, and, and I guess um, for me, I've I've spent a lot of hours, a lot of time studying, going to classes. I have a, a mentoring group that um, we meet online every other week, and we talk about um, the latest research, the latest strategies. Like I have, um, you know, if somebody is struggling with one of their kids, like we can, we can brainstorm together and not every child is the same. Obviously not every technique works the same for each child. And then I have a lot of specialized equipment as well. Um, because I have the rehabilitative ultrasound imaging at, um, at this clinic and at um, Children's Developmental Center. And with that technology, I can um, use it to, to look at the bladder, look at the rectum, and, um, and view the activity of the pelvic floor, what's happening with breathing. I can look at the diaphragm. Um, and it's all from the abdomen, like right above the pubic bone. So kids don't have to undress. It's, there's, um, you know, there's gel. Some kids have sensory issues. They don't like the feeling of that. But it's very um, non-invasive. And it gives so much information. And then I can track that um, rectal diameter over time because we know what normals are. It should be three centimeters or less starting at four years old. And the research is four to 18 years old. It should still be three centimeters. Like the rectum is not a holding vault. It should fill and empty. Like the poop comes down from the sigmoid colon. We get an urge and we empty it. We shouldn't be holding. So, um, and, and then we can see the rectums pushing on the bladder as well with that ultrasound. So, there's um, there's technology. I ha- I have other equipment as well, but um, that technology isn't available in your home. And mm-hmm. um, there's only so far we can get with 
um, more water, fruits and vegetables, and good toilet posture. Like that's that has to be in place, but there's so much more to build off of that for each child individually. So that's and that's why we're specialized, right? That's why we um, we go to school and we use our skills. And I have this database of knowledge from all these kids that I've worked with, that and adults that um, that then I can apply to each um, child that I work with. And mm-hmm. I have this like great support system of therapists throughout our um, country that we um, we're committed to um, to this field. And marketing one on one says, you know, if you say it one time, it's like not saying it at all, right? It takes seven mm-hmm. times at minimum for someone to yeah. truly understand something. Yeah. So if you're yeah. giving someone a video or a piece of paper, are they truly going to be? reading it every day for and being able to apply those techniques without some guidance, I think is, again, back kind of the theme that I've been saying a lot lately with medicine is that it's lazy. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, I mean, we could be critical and also understand like the importance of every single medical practitioner. Um, And so holding people accountable um, is part of it. And that requires Mm -hmm. more personalized care. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think too, like they go to the urologist and the urologist tells them to drink water, go to the bathroom every two hours, sit on the toilet, use a squatty potty. And then they come to me and I say the same thing. And they're like, oh, that's what the doctor told me to do. I'm like, yes, are you doing it? Oh, well, we didn't have time to get this. And, you know, my teacher doesn't let me leave class when I need to go. And like, there's all these barriers to like what see what is seemingly simple interventions there can be a lot of barriers and if and if um kids or parents don't understand like this this is important if we're going to address this problem this is important um because i i would have to say kids who are are struggling the most um parents some parents would like a problem more than constipation. <laughs> like, okay. like there's got to be something yeah. wrong with my child system mm-hmm. or they would not be telling me that they can't feel when they go to the bath, when like when they're leaking and I see that their clothing is wet and they say they didn't know that they went, like there has to be something wrong. Well, yes, but it is, it is stool in the rectum. And mm-hmm. yeah, so, so um, hearing it too from from different practitioners, I think is mm-hmm. is helpful. And then I I give them you know get this book and it says the same thing from this like big known specialist. And um, so yeah, I I do think like the repetition, even the repetition in my um, in my sessions, and then the repetition between practitioners can make a difference for families. So, you know, you brought up how you work at Therapy Solutions, but you also work at the Developmental Center <clears throat> here in town, which is um, yeah. birth to three and nonprofit so that they can raise funds, they can they can take um, um, state donations, insurance. Yeah, and right. donations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you get to see actually a different cross-section Mm-hmm. Um, at that, uh, yeah. in that arena, it's something I have to say. I regret that you know, uh, I I got to the point where I couldn't afford anymore to take state insurance. Um, we used to do it, and um, uh, you pay money to see those that population because they just can't pay the therapists enough. I used to make. I think it was uh, we dropped it maybe 15 years ago when we were getting paid like $28 a session and I had to pay for the interpreter as well. Mm-hmm. So it was like, well, serve the population that I can or um, close the door. Yeah. So I'm so glad for places like developmental center or, you know, even a lot of the hospitals take on um, mm-hmm. 
you know, fighting to get those grants and things like that, that help them. Uh, so, but it, it creates a class system in healthcare mm-hmm. <laughs> in the delivery yeah. of health. And, you know, you, you guys, you know, having worked at therapy solutions are all like examples of, uh, you know, uh, making a personal sacrifice in, in wages in order to deliver care the way you want to. And, um, that, you know, and then you, there's something, I don't know what it's like at the developmental center for you, but you know, there, there, there is a, a commitment there to that population. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, um, anyway, what are you seeing here in like these different populations and are there different, uh, does that change the underlying causes you see to the problems? Hmm. Well, so, um, so yeah, so just a little clarification with Children's Developmental Center. We are mainly birth to three early intervention, and then they have specialty programs. So I can see um, uh, patients there up to 20 years old. So at 20 years old, on their birthday, they would have to be discharged. And then we have some other specialty programs as well. And the, the center supports all of us um, with their, their fundraising. And we do bill all the, every insurance, every state insurance, and um, we get interpreters. And so it's a different system and it's a different population. And the, um, I do work with kids in foster care that have experienced significant amount of abuse. So um, we know abuse doesn't have any class, Um, but then when they're in foster care, they're automatically on state insurance. And in pediatric pelvic floor, that there is a higher um, kind of incidence of uh, abuse. And so that would be, um, so that, um, like English second language families and then foster care families, that is a different um, kind of clientele than I have at Therapy Solutions. And I would, I would say that it's, um, the, the challenging part is that there's a whole nother layer of emotional trauma that's happened for, for those kids in foster care. And then, um, and then depending if they're getting switched from different foster parents or if they're having supervised visits with their bio parents, um, that, that creates this, this different level of need for mental health support. And, um, at the end of the day, kids, kids can control like like if they're going to use the bathroom when they're going to sit on the toilet and what they're going to eat. I'm not saying that they can control, like it's not going to come out like the, the, the bone bladder leakage. They, they can't control that, but we cannot force a child to um, sit on the toilet to eat or drink. And so when um, life is out of control for them, that is something that they control. And so um, for some of them, that's kind of where the dysfunction starts is um, trying to gain control in some area of their life. And so it's a, it can be a slow process of teaching um, a better strategy to have control is actually learning how to use the toilet, right? <laughs> because you can control this. I know you can control this and, and I need to help teach you how to control it in a better way. Um, so, uh, working with interpreters, I love working with interpreters because it is, um, it's a way for these families to get access to care and there's less, I'd say if I was going to think about like how much I get done in one session, well, less gets done because, because it's like, I'm talking in English the interpreter is interpreting, the parents are talking in Spanish. 
then the interpreter's interpreting. So, you know, it's just kind of the logistics of the way it is. And a lot of the kids I work with are bilingual. So they'll be speaking in English and then the interpreter's kind of interpreting for them as well. Or maybe they talk to their parents in Spanish and talking to me in English. And so it's this like whole beautiful language situation um, and less gets done, but it's still like, there's always like, these are the basics and this is how we build on it. Um, and I'm really, I, I love working with them. Um, they don't have the resources to buy fancy things. Um, and so those ones, especially like, I'm like, just look around your house, like whatever you have, like blocks of wood, bricks, like one family was using like a 12 pack can of soda, like <laughs> in the box and that's in the bathroom. Like it was perfect. Um, for their child. So, um, yeah, so I, I am creative in a different way, um, with those families as far as like what kind of extra things can, can I get for them or what can I encourage them to have? And then, um, that act like that food insecurity can be a, an issue. And I don't, um, I don't, uh, say anything negative about school lunches, but I just, or breakfast, but I just ask them to find a fruit or vegetable that's being offered at school that they can add to their diet. That's not a banana. Like bananas are very constipating for kids. And so, um, I asked them what fruits and vegetables they have at school. Cause they, a lot of them are free, free lunch or free breakfast, free lunch. So, um, and then if families are um, some of those families, they go grocery shopping once a month. So it's not um, like fresh fruits and vegetables are maybe available for a, a week. And then let's look at canned, canned, frozen, dried. Like just because um, you, you don't have access to, to fresh fruits and vegetables, we can still get some nutrition that way into our diet. So those are some of the differences. Um, I, I find that they're just as motivated, just as good at following through, um, and just as concerned for their child. It's a matter of what problems that or triggers, mm-hmm. like you, like yeah. you said, like, um, the effects of, of trauma, perhaps right. not that that's, uh, well, if they're into the foster care system, there's going to be a high level of stress for yeah. for them. Yeah. Um, and and I think we can't do this like cause and effect as much as this association, right? Mm-hmm. We know there's there's an association with bowel and bladder issues, with trauma, with ADHD, with sensory issues, um, and at the other end, there's an association with high level athletes. Like we know gymnasts, a lot of gymnasts, they are leaking urine every time they do a jump, every time they do a round off, every time they do whatever they're leaking. And so, um, uh, yeah. So we, we look at these associations and then we, we, um, know they're at that higher risk and then, how can we meet their needs? How can we help them? And I think anyone can become more aware of uh, themselves through their bowel and bladder function, because mentally you can be thinking, I'm managing my life fine, but, but it, you might notice, oh, suddenly I, I, you know, I've been constipated. My bowel habits have changed. So your body right. will say, Hell yeah. Um, I'm stressed. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. Going, but... <laughs> All those emotional emotional hormones that get like dumped into our GI system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our nervous yeah. system is so related yeah. to our guts and our bowels. Yeah, or... yeah. I was wondering yeah. if you could speak to, you mentioned like schools and systems, but how mm-hmm. like school plays a role in yeah. our pelvic health um, and what yeah. schools might might be happening at schools that aren't great but maybe like what they could do better yeah so um i i have to tell you what one of the ot's 
um, came into work one day and she said, Laura, like every child in that classroom had a water bottle on their desk. You would have been so happy. I was like, okay, somebody probably had like one of my kids in their class. So like hydration. Um, so um, teachers have varying, like they have so much on their plate. So I don't want to sound negative to teachers at all. Um, but kids need to be drinking water when they're at school. And if kids are not allowed to have water bottles on their desk, it is out of sight, out of mind. Like if they have to be in their backpack or at the back of the classroom where they're not going to see it, they're not going to drink the water. Like we notice that I notice that with myself at work. Like if I don't have my water bottle in the treatment room, then I'm like, oh, it's been the whole morning and I didn't get any water. So, um, so that would be number one. Um, uh, number two is that um, kids, I, so my impression is that um, there are some kids who will go to the bathroom and not actually like go to the bathroom. Like they use it to get out of class, to whatever, go play around, meet their friends, whatever. But the majority of kids are going to the bathroom because they actually need to go to the bathroom. So having um, very restrictive bathroom policies can be very um, detrimental for, for kids. And, um, and some kids have had terrible experiences, like kids are looking under the, the door, I hear, or they're throwing like paper towels at me, or, you know, like kids have bad experiences in the bathroom. So I honestly, I don't blame them if they don't want to go during recess when like all that like stuff is happening. So they need to have access to, to the bathrooms and it needs to happen like in an easy way for them. And then um, kids that I work with, I, I write notes for them and request access to the nurse's station bathroom because if they have to change, if they're wearing a pad because they're leaking, like they have to be able to do that discreetly. If they need extra underwear at school, then there has to be systems in place. And so they'll go on a health plan actually. And so then that's something that the doctor has signed. I can't sign them. But um, they'll have a form from the school nurse. They have the doctor sign it, and it says exactly these things. Like, they, they have free access to the bathrooms, access to their water bottle. They can use the nurse's station whenever they need to. And so that it's more supportive of them being able to take care of their, their needs. American toilets are such a... Um, you know, other places in the world, the walls go all the way to the floor. And so yeah. many of the toilets in the U.S., they, they stop about a foot off the ground. Yeah. And there's these stalls. And you think, you know, the country started out with such um, kind of prudish <laughs> uh, approach to things. And then we have these toilets that are, don't. Like, no, it's private. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah yeah like the gap I was just thinking about this the other day like the gap um that I could see through the door you know someone could literally see me um yeah. wiping myself um so yeah so seeing like a child um you yeah. know having to deal with that how terrible that yeah. would be yeah and and then when you get to older kids like in middle school like um it, it gets harder and then in high school, it gets even harder. And just like I always ask what the bathroom policy is at the school. And then I try to encourage them to work in the system and to get the health plans. Um, because then because then it's it's uh, it's like a legal document. So they have access when they need it. It would be interesting to see if adult um, continent issues are can be um, correlated with occupation because it sure seems to me like we get a lot of teachers and nur nurses and you know these professions where they don't get time to go to the bathroom they can't leave their classroom and yes uh, for sure go to the bathroom when they need to yeah i would problem. say for sure it's it's correlated to problems mm -hmm. later in life yeah 
These are great at holding. (laughs) Thank you, Laura, for being with us today. Yeah, this is so fun. It is. You're welcome to come back. Join us. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Our group tends to have these fantastic discussions, and we always ask ourselves why we haven't recorded any of them. And now, here we are. If you are interested in more content, we'll be releasing new episodes every other Monday. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Therapy Solutions PLLC. That PLLC is super important. This is the Rehab Within Reach podcast, where all are encouraged to experience wholeness and independence. See you soon.